We're talking with Leela Phillip, the author of Beaverland. And I love your um, subtitle here, How One Weird Rodent Made America. Um, Beaverland, tell us, uh, Leela, you know, why or the numbers vary, I know, but well, I think I remember from the book, 60 to 400 million beaver were in North America. At what time would, the, would this have been 1600 or what, what was this uh, well, estimate? Well, basically, you just have to think pre-1600. Beaver really did make America. They jump-started transatlantic trade because it was the kind of lust for beaver pelts that sent ships racing across the Atlantic looking for beaver pelts. And then by the 19th century, it was the fur trade that really got capitalism going. And, um, you know, kind of the rest is history. Our first multimillionaire, John Jacob Astor, got his start selling beaver pelts. So beavers played this incredible role as an important commodity here. And then they were kind of disregarded as kind of um, pests when they ran out as um, kind of a commodity. And now they have this exciting, incredible new role to play, helping us face climate change. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of giving you the fast forward, but What's incredible about the story of beavers in North America is that we almost wiped them out, but incredible efforts were made in the 1900s to bring them back. And because of those efforts, there are beavers throughout North America, they're rebounding, people are harnessing what they do for environmental restoration projects throughout the country. They're seeing the benefits because Beavers can restore wetlands, they can repair degraded river systems, they can bring water to help fight wildfires, to help mitigate flooding, to help dwindling groundwater supplies. I mean, it's remarkable what this little rodent can do to help us face our problems that are exacerbated by did, you know, climate change, right? Did, did we did we always know? Well, I, I don't know if we always know, but when did we realize the benefit of beavers? As you say in your book, beavers are the only animals apart from man that radically transform their environment. When did we know that? Yeah, isn't that amazing? Well, <clears throat> I think it's important to say who the we is. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, um, let me just kind of answer your question because I jumped right over it. So for millennia, right, for eons, there were beavers throughout North America. So you need to go back and imagine Beaverland pre-1600 when beavers 60 to 400 million were in every watershed throughout the continent. So they would have been helping the river systems function the way they should, which is basically like these great arteries pulsing water throughout the land. So that's the role of the beaver. They are critical to a healthy river ecology. And when we wiped them out, um, it took about 300 years. So by from 1600 to 1900, by the end of the fur trade and with excessive timbering and the advent of our English style agriculture, those three things, we really degraded the river system. And geologists call it the great drying. So that's like, we could sort of talk all day about that, but it left our river systems really degraded. And a lot of our problems today, as we face, you know, accelerating climate change and our problems with water come from that problem. We have lost 
over 50% of our wetlands. And wetlands serve as these huge invisible sponges that soak up and soak up floodwaters and they store water for floods. And they need to imagine them like invisible coffee filters that are also cleansing water, right? So, but to go back to, to beaver land and to beavers. So once upon a time, beavers were part of this incredibly rich ecology of North America. And it was this rich ecology that would lead to these vast boreal forests and the incredible hardwood forests and grasslands that grew in North America, which led to the abundance of wildlife that the first European settlers and explorers would encounter here. And it would just blow them away. I mean, it was incredible the amount of wildlife they encountered. But that's the European we. The indigenous peoples who have always lived here understood the profound importance of the beaver. And I, you know, I thread this through the book. The book opens with the story of great beaver in the East, um, the story of great beaver from the Algonquian tradition that was up and down the Atlantic seaboard and, and into the Great Lakes area because the book is located in the East Coast where I live um, in Connecticut and that's the Algonquin peoples, the woodland peoples. So throughout North America, the indigenous peoples valued the beaver. Um, the woodland peoples who had enough water would hunt beaver but they had a lot of protocols about how beaver were hunted that would honor the beaver and treat the beaver in particular ways apart from other game animals. And then you go out west to more arid regions and indigenous peoples like the Blackfeet who lived in the Northern Plains in areas like the grasslands east of the Rocky Mountains and along the north of the Canadian border, they had strict prohibitions against hunting beavers at all mm. because they understood in that kind of an arid grassland, the beavers bringing water were key to the cycle of grasslands that would bring the bison. And they lived on the bison. They lived, they had a bison ecology and they understood that if they hunted beavers, they were damaging the larger ecosystem. So you know, we refer to this now as indigenous ecological knowledge or IEK, but indigenous science is revealed in stories like the great beaver. So the we needs to be clarified when right. we say, you know, when did we discover this? I think Western science has been catching mm -hmm. up in the last 20 years. Talking with Leela Phillip, author of Beaverland, about um, these marvelous creatures that that are about when you say they're on the rebound I mean um, is there a is there a good number for beaver I mean do we need to get twice as many or I mean or is that even something can we comprehend that kind of thing same in the Midwest I think people are waking up to the economic value of beavers and um, how many do we need we need as many as we can get into places where we don't have infrastructure in the way and, are they protected now, Leela? Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, are there yeah. rules or laws about hunting beaver? Um, it it varies state to state. Um, California just changed some of their um, the the status of beavers so that 
uh, actually, they can't just be indiscriminately um, hunted. You have to, if you're gonna um, take them out, you actually have to get a permit. So every state's different. And I think that's actually a concern. The Beaver Institute here in the Northeast has a working group that's actually working on trying to get communication between states and, and some kind of maybe national policy so that they can be harnessed and utilized in a more coherent way. But some of that is gonna vary because they're, gonna, they're regional differences, right. right? What Illinois might need is gonna be different than New York State, and it's gonna mm -hmm. be very different than Utah. Right, right. So, right. Um, but, but basically the problem is, and you have to forgive me, you, I'm so um, passionate about beavers. You just have to wind me up, and I, <laughs> I pretty much talk all day. You know, well, you, your book, <clears throat> your book uh, starts off with with you in the in the wilds um, uh, with with a, a trapper, a, a gentleman that yeah. I think has since passed on. But um, yeah. yeah, Herb, I remember the name. Um, yeah, Herb Sabansky. <clears throat> And and he he was uh, interesting because I mean I think he had a lot of knowledge and took you right out to where they where the beavers are, but he was he was actually um, uh, what uh, trapping them correct? Yeah, I mean one of the I wanted to share many things with readers in this book. I mean, primarily I wanted to share with readers not just how amazing beavers are, but how amazing the story of beavers on this continent is, because it's such a story of hope and resiliency for our time. We can learn so much from it. But, you know, thank you for mentioning her because I met so many amazing people. I had so many mentors in this book, but ironically, it was a fur trapper, Herb Savansky, who, um, you know, first really taught me about beavers and it was his great love of beavers that opened my eyes to um, kind of seeing the wetlands of Northeastern Connecticut in a new way. It was his love of that place. And he was quite a conservationist. And this initially sort of confused me. I just really wasn't prepared. I'm an animal lover um, and, I, and I really wasn't prepared to um, encounter all the paradoxes involved in meeting this fur trapper who was sort of a citizen scientist in a way. He was sending uh, hair samples to different universities, not just for beavers, but for fisher and otter. And he was passionate about the animals. He did believe in the legacy of fur trapping. It was really important to him personally and culturally to kind of keep that connection to American history. So, you know, he and I kind of differed about that because my feeling in 2024 is that a live beaver is much more valuable than a pelt at this yeah. point. But um, I think Herb actually might agree with me if he had still been living. You know, I wrote the, I was talking to him four years ago. A lot has changed in the last four years. And he also, it was from Herb that I got the title of the book Beaverland. He mm. stood on a, a um, kind of a, beaver lodge one day and he looked out and he just said you know look at this it's beaver land he just was so happy and I jotted it down I thought I don't know what he means but that's kind of cool and mm -hmm. later through research I really understood what what beaver land meant but um you know it's it also I think we have to own our dark extractive history with the environment if we're going to 
change it and do differently. We can't just kind of bump over it. Um, and we also have to understand that people have different ways of being in the outdoors and being um, in the woods. And he was a hunter and a trapper. And that's not my way of being in the woods. But for many people, that's a very profound connection to the natural world. So I, I respect that as long as it's done in an ethical way. The, uh, you mentioned, uh, <clears throat> Leo, the uh, Native American, Indigenous Americans, Indigenous peoples that respected the beavers and mentioned some specifically. But you also have in the book the fact that they they were part of the, the fur trade. I mean, uh, certain certain groups were. Um, because of what sickness? Because of they felt the beaver let them down, or what was what was your explanation there on why? Because somebody might think, well, wait a minute, the 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 Indians were hunting beavers too, you know, when it was early on, uh, they were helping the French and the English, um, and that was true, wasn't it? Yeah, well, this is a big, complicated topic, and as I think you know, I wrote a whole chapter called Stone right, about right. Um, sort of our complicated. Of darker past, um, I, I use the stone walls as a starting point. And I don't want to kind of try to um, pick apart a, a complex chapter in three sentences, but um, I, do, I will say, you know, we are learning more and more with every new article and book and research because a lot was lost to history, a lot was erased, a lot was misrepresented. And I think we're bringing new scholarship so that we can correct um, incorrect histories, we can fill in erasures. So I was really proud in this book if I could make even a small contribution to that process, but I'm not a historian, I'm not a specialist on indigenous history. And I think it's, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable speaking for, you know, indigenous peoples and there should be an S on the end because there are over, you know, 500 different indigenous right. peoples um, who are even recognized throughout this continent um, and a lot of variation. But I think the history was uh, of why different indigenous groups participated in the fur trade um, is complicated. And certainly there were so many different factors and and there's there was also human, uh, you know, personality and differences. Um, so, People participated or didn't participate because of personality. They also participated or didn't participate participate because of the history of their um, situation. But there was a lot of war that was brought to the continent with the fur trade. And there were these new technologies of guns that were needed. And then there were technologies to just improve your life that were brought with the traders. So, you know, it was, it was, I think, complicated. There were a lot of different um, impulses going on at the same time. I think for many um, indigenous groups who participated and then tried to resist that participation, um, it was at times too late, or um, some of those stories have been really distorted. So, it's 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 actually worth, you know, more history being done on that really sad topic. Right. And there's some groups like the the Blackfeet that 
pretty much did not participate. And many of the groups out in the arid north um, west in modern day Montana tended to be much more aggressive toward fur trappers and traders than in the east, which is also interesting. And it, I think, indicates that they were much more protective of the beavers. And when I was reading, when I first started this book, I actually started the research here in the Antiquarian Society in Worcester. And I was reading early fur trade diaries and, and a lot of them were complaining about how the Blackfeet wouldn't cooperate. And they would say, we ask them for beavers and they bring us wolf. You know, I don't know why we can't get them to bring us what we want. And now that I understand Blackfeet culture, mm -hmm. I realized that they were trying to kind of negotiate and say, look, here, have this beautiful wolf. We don't want to hunt the beaver, you know, take this instead. And the, but the European traders who were trying to get beaver felt for the hat industry, however beautiful that wolf pelt was, it wasn't useful for them because they needed beaver fur. So beavers have this incredible fur that is barbed. And in Europe, they discovered in the 1500s that it made the most incredible felt. So they would strip the hair off and make felt. And it was like the vortex of its day. So beaver felt hats were not just fashion. They were incredibly valuable and useful and expensive and everybody needed them. So you got to think about Mr. Darcy on the streets of London with his top hat, but also George Washington with his tricorn hat, you know? Um, and even today, um, there are certain groups that still use not just beaver, but also fisher cat in the, um, uh, the Hasidic cultures, uh, the, the, those tall hats are made of, often made of. You've got a great illustration in there, I think from, <laughs> 1907 yeah. or something um but but looking back not just at, at that year but of all the different types of hats yeah, yeah. i've got it in front of me With, I, I love the names um the wellington and, and the, yeah. the the dorsey as you mentioned that one uh, but <clears throat> you know i recognize uh the napoleon's kind of the hat we associate right. with napoleon cocked hat or whatever uh, right. but all those different hats and they all had beaver for, you know, as part of them. So, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I was on, on sorry to interrupt, I was online. No, no. Stetson now has a line of antique, very expensive hats you can buy with beaver. Oh. So what they've done is they found old hats and they've somehow, you know, um, melted them down. And, and the, the beaver felt is that durable and valuable that they wow. are something. For, for hundreds of dollars, beaver felt Stetsons. So it was it a little cowboy hat. You know, a good cowboy hat was a, you know, a, a lifetime purchase. I think, right? You're so. So anyway, it it it's it it um, it was a valuable valuable uh, commodity of its day. And, what's, so, Lila, what's 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 next for um, the beaver? I mean, obviously, we, we now. You know, we, you mentioned yourself the the importance of uh, with global uh, climate change, the need for for action. Um, the, the the beaver is being, you know, recognized now. But what else is going on? Are there are there other movements that uh, will affect uh, the, the the sort of the recovery? 
Yeah, well, that's also a great question. And I think it's really exciting because I think more and more people are recognizing that beavers are a regional climate action plan for North America. So, and I read about some of these um, projects and programs in the book. So in Milwaukee, um, there was a 2021 study and it was actually partially funded by the sewage department. And they looked at how if they restocked beavers in the 900 square miles of the Milwaukee River watershed, that within 25 years, a population of beavers and not that many could begin to store a stunning amount of flood water storage, 1.7 billion gallons annually. And that much flood water has a annual dollar value of $3.3 billion. So as these studies are being published, and, and this study was um, done by researchers at University of Wisconsin, and really um, these are these are high level scientific studies where they using sophisticated storm modeling and they're being recognized by people in the environmental restoration industry. You know, the light bulb is going on and the cost of putting beavers out versus engineered solutions is, um, you know, dramatically different. And in the Chesapeake, uh, where concern over pollution of the Chesapeake is, is really um, a big concern, they're harnessing beavers in riparian systems along the stream systems to cleanse the water going into the Chesapeake. So beaver wetlands have been shown to uh, cleanse nitrogen and phosphorus. So those are two big concerns, two, two pollutants that really are concerns in the water system. So uh, studies, University of Helsinki came out with a study putting a dollar value on the annual contribution of beavers um, and it was it was really stunning. People can look that up. Uh, over in the UK at the University of Exeter, uh, similar studies are being done that as more and more people are uh, connecting how cost effective it is to let beavers just coexist with beavers, let them do their work versus go in with you know diesel powered, uh, engineered solutions to creating, say, stormwater basins. Uh, towns and municipalities are saying, hey, wait a minute, let's just let the beavers be there. And where we've had beaver problems, we can manage them with things like pond levelers or culvert diversions. And a lot of the traditional problems with beavers happened because people didn't really think about coexisting with them. Instead, they just kind of knee-jerk trapped them out. So I think the whole field is gaining a sense of um, not just legitimacy, but but people are really uh, get, gaining more and more expertise. So that's, I think, you know, really, really positive. And, um, and people are having fun with it. Beavers are so fun to watch. I mean, they're this quirky <laughs> rope with four orange teeth. And um, the other thing we haven't even talked about is that They've been so understudied as an animal. And I have a lot of fun writing about people like Dorothy Richards, the beaver lady, and other people who really fell for beavers and were kind of self-trained naturalists. Had them at the table. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a lot of her observations, which were completely discounted in her day because she was a woman and she was self-trained and 
people thought she was emotionally just too close to the beavers. Well, now we have, you know, um, animal behaviorists like Franz de Waal and important people um, doing research on capuchin monkeys and others. And, and we know that um, many of her observations are, are, are actually true. Guess what? Animals do have an emotional life and octopi, it turns out, dream and dogs have much more of an emotional life than we ever thought. And I think um, people are connecting the dots. Uh, there's a, just such an interesting, I think, opening of thinking and research about animal science that's that's happening at the same time. So I'm sort of waiting for beaver research to take off because they, they've been so understudied as an animal. Um, we really don't know. You know, what we don't know about beavers is much greater than what we do know. And, and I'm having... I've, I've sort of turned into a citizen scientist myself because I've been monitoring a beaver site near my house, just feeding the information to different researchers. But I've become completely kind of taken by the story of these two young beavers because every time I turn around and I share some information about what they're doing, people are like, wow, that's really interesting. We had no idea they were doing that. Well, it, it is a fascinating topic and, and, Boy, if there isn't a lesson there that, you know what, uh, if you just let them alone, uh, good things will happen, in, you know, in terms of wetlands and water flow and all that stuff. So <clears throat> good that we found that out before it was too late, um, because uh, obviously uh, we we've you know haven't learned that lesson in other areas where uh, animals have disappeared. But uh, good, that, good that you did that. Leah, we're, we're out of time, Leila. I, I thank you so much for providing the background that we need. Um, where, where do you, one last thing, where do you send somebody who wants a little more info on beavers? Oh, great question. Um, so um, uh, there's an institute here in the East called the Beaver Institute. Um, people can Google it. They have a lot of information on their site. Um, there's, I mean, I think if people Google beavers in California, there's interesting work going on out there. Um, I try to keep a, an Instagram going if people want to, you know, where I keep photographs and information about current Beaver news, the Leela Phillip, I can, and I have a Twitter and Facebook, same, um, same name. And, uh, and the paperback's coming out uh, January 30th. And I have a, a new afterword there all about rivers and the way in which beavers contribute to healthy river system and I update uh, basically what's gone on for beavers and beaver restoration movements since the book, since I was first researching the book a couple of years ago. So hopefully that will help people who want to get updated. <laughs> Plus you've got a lot of, you list a lot of books in there too about fur trade and all the topics that you hit if somebody wants to do a little uh, light reading about uh, the beaver and, and yeah. history that we, we've we uh, roll through here. Leila, thank you so much. Um, we wish you the best and uh, look forward to the, the paperback and uh, uh, look forward to maybe talking to you down the road here a little bit because uh, this is a subject that we need to revisit, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. there's, you know, I think it's really important for us to just feel hopeful and take action and um, look in our own backyards. You know, I discovered beavers by accident and they're so ordinary they're extraordinary. And it, it just left me thinking, what else is out there? 
Wonderful. Thanks again, Layla. Take care. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.